Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. For those of us who've grown up in the faith, we are about to begin, as I mentioned previously, the sacred journey with Jesus that over the course of the history of the church has come to be known as Holy Week. And for anyone present, not making any assumptions, for anyone present who might be new to all this, here's a bit of orientation for this annual pilgrimage of ours. Seemingly, out of nowhere, Jesus of Nazareth appears on the scene proclaiming the dawn of the kingdom of God, our Creator's reclamation of a lost and broken world. Jesus then travels far and wide to teach and offer miraculous signs of the specific shape and particular character of God's rule. And all that Jesus talks about, all that Jesus tells us about how God works, all his talk that we've been looking at these last few weeks of Lent, all this talk of the last being first, the least being the greatest, losing one's life to find one's life, giving away what you have to gain what you need, and loving one's enemies without expecting anything in return. It all shocks and surprises everyone. Both the message and the posture of Jesus' life were and still are radically counterintuitive to how we see how we engage the world. Because again, Jesus didn't just talk like this. He embodies and models the spirit of what he teaches. God's generosity, God's forgiveness, God's grace as he repeatedly crosses social and cultural boundary lines previously deemed unbroachable. As Jesus invites and includes others into the promise of God's blessing who were not viewed as worthy or redeemable, unsavory, unclean, offensive types of people. Controversy and contention pretty much follow Jesus wherever he goes. And now, Jesus is turning his face toward the holy city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the capital of the once proud nation of Israel, but now one of many occupied territories under the, th the thumb of the ever-expanding Roman Empire. And to be clear, Jesus has been to this city before. Like any observant Jew, he visits the city at least three times a year for the main pilgrimage festivals of Passover, Shavuot, or what we know as Pentecost, and Sukkoth. And in fact, John in his gospel also alludes to Jesus coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Hanukkah, the festival of lights. But now, even as Jesus arrives yet again on the eve of another Passover, this time it's different. This time Jesus comes not merely for a visit or to dutifully observe a festival. This time Jesus comes to do what he was born to do, to reveal himself to be the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. With that introduction, let us listen as Luke records the moment Jesus enters the city. The words are on the screen if you want to follow along. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, 
he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sometimes... The more a story gets told, the more the story gets reshaped by those passing it along. And as a result, certain details can start to be left out. This is one of those stories. One of those stories where our traditional way of telling and retelling the version of the story that we already have in our heads causes us to not actually pay attention to the story that we're hearing year after year the way it was originally told. For example, when we picture this scene in our minds, we envision a parade of people. You heard it in the songs that we started to sing. It's encapsulated that way. Almost everyone in the city eagerly gathering to herald Jesus' arrival. And yet, if we listen and look carefully, Luke describes the scene much, much differently. As Jesus rides into town, the only people who have gathered are nothing more than the whole crowd of disciples. In other words, those present amount to a handful of people, the known 12 and a few other unnamed companions of Jesus, and few of them, if any, are from Jerusalem proper. Apparently, life in the big city goes on interrupted with Jesus' arrival. After three years of teaching, healing, driving out demons, even raising people from the dead, Jesus has only convinced those who were already following him to make an appearance. Our remembrance of this story also always includes the waving of palm branches amid the continued shouts of Hosanna, which directly translated means save us or save now. And yet, if you were paying attention, we find none of that in Luke's version of the story. All we're told is the people following Jesus spread their cloaks on the road before him, but there is no mention of palm branches. And while the gathered disciples 
Praise God with a loud voice. There is no mention of anyone singing or shouting Hosanna. Even though we find all those facts in the other three gospel accounts of this event, Luke purposefully direct decides to leave out what we already know so well in order to direct our focus toward two other details we otherwise miss. To appreciate the first, let us widen the angle of the picture before us. You heard Luke describe it. To make his way into Jerusalem, Jesus journeys downward off the hillside from Bethany. And as he reaches the top of the Mount of Olives, the palatial vision of the ancient holy city comes into few, full view before him. Can we put the slide on the screen? That's the image from the top of that place today. And if you come to me with his, to Israel, you'll get to see it. <laughs> this is what it looked like when Jesus saw it. Next slide. That's the picture. And as Jesus and his company... His company of followers draw closer to their destination. Their path winds its way through the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley, a sacred and legendary place in the history and the future of Israel. This is the same valley King David once used as an escape route during his son Absalom's rebellion and near division of Israel. This is the valley where long ago the Lord God Almighty, working through King Jehoshaphat, defeated Israel's enemies. This is the valley where the Old Testament prophecies say Elijah will one day return after being whisked up to heaven. This is the valley where many of those same prophecies anticipate the Messiah will pass through to enter the temple when Israel is restored. All the history of Israel's kings and all of God's promises for Israel's final redemption are here in this valley. Likely, it's their remembrance of this past, their expectation for the future, that prompts the disciples to herald Jesus as he arrives, not merely as the Messiah, but as a king. The blessed king who comes in the name of the Lord. And to this rallying cry, the followers of Jesus add another declaration. Curiously, but surely not coincidentally, reminiscent of the angelic chorus proclaimed to the shepherds watching their flocks by night on the night of Jesus' birth. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And it's here, at this moment, that Luke points out the first detail, an incident, an exchange the other gospel writers forget to mention. All this brazen and seemingly presumptuous singing and shouting by the disciples leads the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, perhaps his biggest antagonizers for the last three years who have been tailing Jesus all over the hill country of Galilee and now apparently into Jerusalem. It leads the Pharisees to protest. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Translation, Jesus, silence all this talk. Tell your followers to shut up. And Jesus' response to his critics, at first, it kind of seems nonsensical. I tell you, Jesus says, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Come again, Jesus? A bunch of rocks is going to start talking? I mean, to us, a stone is good for throwing or skipping on the water. 
Uh, a pebble is something that gets annoyingly stuck in your shoe. A boulder is something we trip over. It's an obstacle blocking our path. I mean, if we really want to insult another person, we might say they're as dumb as a rock. Clearly, we don't place the same value or worth in stones that Jesus does. But perhaps the clue to Jesus' meaning is to be found in reference to his current location. Coming down from Jerusalem, in, coming down into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, Jesus passes what is still today the oldest Jewish cemetery in the world, with burial sites dating back to the time of King David. Put the slide up. There it is. There's a picture of it. An ancient Jewish custom called for a stone to be placed on a grave when it's visited by a loved one as a sign of remembrance. So when Jesus responds to the Pharisees, he likely points to that, those plethora of rocks marking the tombs in view all around them, and they're all around. As he insists, these rocks for the dead will speak even if those living, still living, do not. Elsewhere in Scripture, the Apostle Paul assures us that all creation groans in eager expectation for its liberation. And before the continuing turn of events, of the next few days for Jesus, before what will be unexpected to all, before what will leave everyone speechless, the stones will indeed cry out. When Jesus, the stone the builders reject, takes his last breath and announces his work on our behalf is finished, a wounded and dying world will not remain silent. The stones will cry out, the scriptures record in the only way they can as the foundations of the very earth will shake, as the curtain of the temple separating the holy from the unholy will tear in two from top to bottom, and as those same graves Jesus points to now will be opened. Beloved, the meaning of Jesus' response is this. Whatever is true has to be said. Whatever is true will be expressed, even if we do not want to hear it, even if we choose not to say it. Jesus is nearly there now. He's nearly there. And we might imagine after dropping the mic on his critics, before the celebration and anticipation of his disciples, we might imagine Jesus happily makes his approach into Jerusalem. After all, we often refer to this day, to this moment, as Jesus' triumphal entry. Don't we? But again, if you were listening, if you were paying attention, what Luke describes might more accurately be called the tragic entry. For as Jesus gets ever closer to his destination, his heart isn't full. His heart is heavy. With each step forward Jesus takes, there's not a growing smile on his face. There are instead continued building tears of sadness. Jesus is crying. And depending on where you stand, either in all the celebrating or in all the grumbling, no one seems to notice. Jesus is crying. No one seems to notice, do we? Ask most people when and where in the Bible Jesus cried, and they'll take you to the Gospel of John, to the shortest verse in the New Testament. The site of Lazarus' tomb, where we are told Jesus wept. This moment, however, 
is nothing like that one at all. There, only days ago, as he stood before the grave of his dear friend, Jesus' eyes welled up and some drops trickled down his cheeks. But here, Luke, in his choice of words, ensures that we understand Jesus in this moment isn't just shedding a few tears. Jesus is wailing with grief. Jesus' lament is the kind of weeping Lazarus' sisters had done before their brother surprisingly walked out of his tomb. Jesus' continued cry is the kind of bawling Peter will do, later do, after he realizes he's denied Jesus three times. This is the kind of sobbing where not just your face, but your whole body throbs uncontrollably, where with each breath you take, it feels like your cries are getting louder and longer, but you can't manage to pull yourself together. And the obvious question is, why? Why is Jesus crying like this? Thankfully, Jesus tells us why. You heard it. Jesus says, if you... Even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You see, at first glance, everything here looks wonderful. I mean, those who are following Jesus, after all the miracles they've seen, we're told, all those who have followed follow Jesus are openly, boldly, and unreservedly declaring him to be king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And with Jesus' arrival, they also anticipate, they are celebrating the dawn of peace, and they give God the glory for that coming gift. And yet Jesus laments. Jesus laments because even though his followers may be right about who he is, three years later, three years in, they've still got it all wrong about the kind of kingdom he comes to bring. Jesus weeps over the disconnect between what the people expect from him and what he purposes to do for them. His followers rightly hail him as their long-awaited prophesied king, the one who will save them. But they are dead wrong as they anticipate his reign to be about the restoration of their land, their fortunes, their temple from the hands of the Roman Empire. Those closest to Jesus still have no idea what they need saving from and what their freedom will cost. Jesus, on the other hand, as the procession goes past that ancient graveyard on the Mount of Olives, right by the tombs of kings like Solomon and his father David, Jesus understands what happens to Israel's kings. They die. They die. What the people don't understand is Jesus comes to die for them, for us. Jesus comes to die, but unlike any king who's come before or any king who has or will come since, Jesus' life will not be taken from him in defeat or in defense of his subjects. No, Jesus as the king of kings will lay down his life willingly purposefully in order to go on the offensive and conquer humanity's greatest enemy in order to save us from ourselves. 
Jesus' disciples proclaim that peace is coming and give God the glory for it, but they cannot see. Perhaps they even refuse to see. There is no true, lasting peace without our surrender. Surrendering our will before God's will. Yielding all our hopes and dreams before God's hopes and dreams for us. Beloved, the cross means nothing. Resurrection means nothing. It offers us nothing. If we refuse to see that all of what Jesus willingly embraces and endures is the mess of our own making, is a reflection of our appetite for self-destruction, is the grave that we dig for ourselves. And so you see, contrary to how we remember it, how we tell it year after year, this isn't a parade. This isn't some party line into Jerusalem. This is a funeral procession. This is a funeral procession. Only the mourners haven't quite figured it out yet. And make no mistake, this moment... This moment isn't simply about the first disciples of Jesus or the citizens of Jerusalem way back when. This moment captures the whole of the human condition before God in any time or place. It reflects how broken we are, how despite our best intentions, how often and how easily we attempt to make Jesus in our own image rather than to embrace and receive Christ for who he is as the perfect reflection of who we were created together to become as children created in the image of God. This moment demonstrates why believing and following Jesus are not what save us. Believing and following Jesus are not what save us unless what we believe about Jesus and how we follow Christ derives solely from God's grace, from God's lead, from God's work, from God's power in and through us and has nothing to do with anything we do, any work on our own. It is a reminder that while Jesus is prepared and will die for us all, unless we are willing to die to ourselves, to surrender anything and everything in which we place our hope and our salvation rather than Jesus, unless we are willing to die to ourselves, we will find ourselves still trapped in the kingdoms of our own making rather than experiencing the freedom of living in the kingdom of God. So here we go again. Here we go again. Are we ready once again to realize our ways are not our Father's ways? While we, sit, while we say we hail Jesus as our rightful king, do we yet recognize and will we embrace Jesus as the king he was born to be? crowned not with the kind of power and prestige we desire and banter about. 
but rather soon to be crowned with the thorns of the suffering we inflict on each other and on ourselves. Echoing the angels in the realms of glory, we sing and profess Jesus as the one who brings us peace. But are we looking for? Will we receive from Christ the peace he intends to bring into our lives? Not the resolution of some external contention we have with our declared enemies. But the more intimate, the more revealing, and certainly the more disruptive internal transformation of our conflicted minds and hearts. No matter who we are, doesn't matter. No matter who we are, no matter how well we think we've managed to construct our lives, no matter how practiced we are at disguising the cracks and covering the bruises, we all remain divided selves. We are all living fractured lives. We've all got baggage, broken relationships, missed opportunities, painful failures, aching losses, nagging insecurities, unhealed wounds, inner demons that torment us, hidden faults and secret sins buried so deep that no one else knows about them, but no matter what we do, we cannot forget. I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. But even if we don't tell, even if we can't face them, God knows, God sees, and God cares. Over our continued brokenness and blindness in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our communities. Even as we think about this past week, children gunned down yet again in a place where they should be safe. Jesus weeps. In our persistent inclination towards violence, scapegoating, and self-destruction, even as we watch our politicians refuse to work together by instead blaming each other for what's wrong, and as we think we're better than they are, we end up just doing the same. In our city, over our nation, over this world, Jesus weeps. Over all our celebration, of what we have accomplished for God, how we love to let people know what we're doing for God. And at times, it's our justification for things that we should not be doing because we're doing it for the Lord. Over all our celebration of what we're doing, what we've accomplished for God, even at the same time as we deny, in fact, expressing gratitude for how God provides for us through forgiving, loving, and serving each other, Jesus weeps. Beloved, the next few days are sacred because they are about remembering, maybe realizing for the first time, that God comes down to us in Jesus Christ to carry all that baggage, to set us free from the weight and burden of it, to exercise all those demons, 
to forgive every sin, to heal our wounds, to remove our insecurities, to reconcile our shattered relationships, and to redeem our failures and our losses. But before we can celebrate with Jesus, we must cry with Jesus. We must cry with Jesus. And there it is. Because many, if not all of us, have an immediate aversion to crying. We resist it. We fight it. We're embarrassed and we apologize for it when we're doing. I'm sorry. I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. This is so embarrassing. I'm sorry I'm crying right now. We believe. We've been taught. Crying is an indication of our weakness. And so we've been raised. We've been told to pull ourselves together. To put up a good front to put our best foot forward. But that is not the way of the kingdom. That's the way of the world. If we follow Jesus, and I, that's why we're here, if we follow Jesus, then like Jesus, we must refuse to hold back the tears. Tears of confession. Tears of mourning. Tears for our life and our world that are not the way they're supposed to be. Tears, as hard as it is, that acknowledge we are not all that we yet can be. Our honest tears will never fall in vain because Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps not only for us, but with us, even to the point of death. And Jesus eventually will turn our tears of mourning into dancing. The promise and assurance of a fresh start, of a new beginning today, and an everlasting tomorrow. Because this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Though it may not at first sound like it to us, the good news isn't that Jesus comes to meet our expectations. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus comes day after day after day to radically reshape and transform our expectations of what we can be, of what we must be, of what we will be. Jesus has and he will answer the prayers of the people. Jesus has and will fulfill the hope of all nations. Jesus has and will continue to bring peace, but not as the world gives it. Not with a sword, but with a sacrifice. Jesus has and will, despite ourselves, keep setting us free. Free from more than the might of any human empire or enterprise. Free from ourselves. Jesus has and will deliver us, though, from the principalities and powers, both the individual postures and habits and the institutional forces and mechanisms which bind us to the temptations of sin, evil, and death. All God's promises have and they will be made good. All God's prophecies have and they will be made true. All of it. But not through any means we expect not in the style we would want or would have chosen, 
but always, always in the manner we need. It is said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. However, the path we're about to walk together once again by faith as we follow Jesus is always the exception to the rule. Loving our enemies, blessing those who persecute us, praying for those who mistreat us, offering grace in the face of betrayal and denial, lies and deceit, mockery and scorn, extending forgiveness when no apology is even being offered, where there are only cries of condemnation, it may sound crazy. Still today to some, it is utter foolishness, while to others it remains a complete scandal. But believe it or not, like it or not, this is how God saves us. This is how God saves the world. This is the way, the truth, and the life of the kingdom of God. And we do well to remember it and repeat this journey again. What's crazy is to skip ahead to the end, to Easter. Because, beloved, before we rush ahead and try to appreciate the joy and freedom of an empty tomb, we have to gather and again commune with our teacher, our rabbi in the upper room. We have to keep watch and pray with our friend named Jesus in the garden named Gethsemane. We have to recognize our faces hidden in the crowd, watching from a safe distance as our abandoned Savior walks the road marked with suffering to a hill called Calvary. We have to look up. We have to look up and not away from the cross as our Lord and our God willingly, lovingly dies for our sake to save us from ourselves. Because this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.